Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Blake Whitaker about his book titled Built on the Ruins of Empire, British Military Assistance and African Independence, published by the University Press of Kansas in 2022, um, which is a really interesting book that examines the British government's involvement in the transition to independence of a few, quite a number really, of um, former African colonies, and particularly examining the aspect of military assistance, military development, to understand um, relations between Britain and uh, these countries during this really key moment of independence, um, taking sort of the long view that independence is not something that happens on one particular day, um, but is something that there's a process leading up to and then relations afterwards. So a really interesting book that uh, has a unique perspective in a lot of ways on this period of history. So I'm really pleased to welcome you, Blake, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled, uh, thrilled to be here. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, you know, a scholar of kind of, you know, very loosely speaking, the British Empire, but really more kind of the end of empire. Um, and I, you know, kind of getting to why I decided to write this book, it kind of is paralleled to how I kind of settled on looking at the end of empire. I'd, I'd always kind of, uh, you know, throughout graduate school, um, been interested in the kind of odd situations uh, in in the British Empire, you know, uh, f- colonies that were very small that, you know, you'd almost, you know, even many scholars had maybe never heard of and, you know, just weird kind of uh, situations that were created by, you know, the spread of empire, uh, you know, throughout the world. And um, in kind of, you know, looking into you know, these odd situations, uh, uh, you know, I, I was initially just kind of personally curious in all of the colonial kind of military units, um, that, uh, the British established throughout the world. Obviously, you know, you know, the British Indian army gets the kind of biggest, uh, headlines, so to speak of, uh, you know, the, you know, not just popular history, but also, you know, academic history, because it's, you know, a large institution, there's, there's a relatively robust um, amount of uh, sources um, to be had. 
um, the the current institution of the the, the Indian Army, um, you know, maintains a lot of that history as well. And so there's there's a lot of access points um, to to things like the British Indian Army. But as you kind of go through the other various parts of the empire, uh, you know, I found that there was kind of fewer and fewer places to access uh, good, you know, detailed, um, you know, historical work, uh, you know, not just academic historical work, but just just uh, histories altogether. Um, and so I happened upon, uh, you know, I was looking at various colonies in Africa and, you know, their different military entities. And, you know, I happened upon Rhodesia and I started to kind of look at that kind of weird space, you know, Rhodesia, you know, as it becomes Zimbabwe occupies a very kind of bizarre space in, in British colonization in Africa. You know, it's right there next to South Africa where you have, you know, that whole mixing of British and, you know, Afrikaner influence that creates the apartheid state. Um, And then, you know, a lot of the other, you know, British colonies in Africa are not, you know, they're not settler colonies. Um, They don't have that, um, that European population. Uh, You know, they're, they're colonies that are, you know, for a whole slew of purposes, be they economic or political influence. Um, But there's not that, that addition of that, that settler community that makes things you know, even even more bizarre and creating kind of these very strange hybrid institutions. And so Rhodesia, you know, kind of caught my eye in in that respect, in that it's it's kind of sandwiched between these two. It it was not nearly as um, you know, as extreme as the apartheid government in, in South Africa. And you know, it didn't take that path of um, you know, pursuing that total separation from um, the, you know, the, from Britishness, right? Uh, But, you know, there was this quote that uh, the former, you know, uh, prime minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, had in his memoirs where he always talked about Rhodesia was more British than the British. Um, So first, that kind of really bizarre situation kind of attracted me to um, that problem. And, you know, as I was looking at kind of various things to do, um, related to this, there wasn't a lot of, like I said, good, good history out there. There were, there were a few people doing really great work. Terrence Ranger's work out there was something that was, you know, kind of really set the standard. Louise White's work, you know, she really, um, has done some amazing stuff looking at Zimbabwe and the, the, the interaction between the settler community and um, the, you know, the African population. Um, and so th- those things were out there, but that was, that was kind of it. Uh, and, and other than that, you know, I'm running across like, you know, old soldier of fortune magazine articles uh, or, you know, re- what I, you know, call Rhodesiana, right. M- lots of memoirs, popular military history that really focuses on, um, military exploits of that white settler community. Uh, so 
as I kind of tried to digest all of this and, you know, see what kind of topic uh, I could write about, um, I initially was attracted to actually the experience of African soldiers in the Rhodesian army. And that really caught my attention. Um, And so that was actually what I initially planned to write the book about. Um, But I I think it was in around 2011-ish, I uh, was getting ready to come uh, over to the UK to do a research trip and look at the Rhodesian Army Archive project. Uh, And it was around that time that uh, they were, that that archive was held at the uh, Empire and Commonwealth Museum uh, in Bristol. Uh, And as I was preparing for the trip, that was when that museum announced it was closing. Um, so I was left in a bit of an odd place because they also kind of said, we don't know what we're going to do with all of our archives. Um, so more to follow. And so I, you know, I'd made all the reservations. I was, you know, getting on a plane to go that summer and kind of left in this place where I didn't think I was going to be able to reach the big archive that I, that I knew had a lot of, um, really rich material. Um, so I went anyway. I spent most of my time uh, there in queue at the National Archives, just kind of going through all of the documents related to, you know, Rhodesia, particularly as it turned into Zimbabwe. And that's when really the idea for this book kind of crystallized is I kind of said, here is this really interesting batch of documents that's talking about how do we move from this, you know, Rhodesian army to creating an army for an independent country. Um, And so that's when I, you know, kind of said, okay, this is an interesting question. And I was looking around to see if there was anybody else kind of doing this on like transitions from colony to independent nation where, um, you look at the military aspects of that. There was a lot of rich literature on other aspects of that transition to independence, but really relatively little on the military side of it. Um, and so that was kind of the the place where I said, okay, I think there's, there's something good here um, that kind of came out of that, <laughs> the closing of that, of that museum. So that's kind of how I decided um, for the initial idea for the book. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's really interesting and often really helpful to kind of hear how people's processes of developing questions kind of comes out. Um, I don't think anyone like magically wakes up one day and has the perfect idea. Um, And it's very interesting to kind of hear the steps of how that happens and how, you know, random chance of like, wait, it happened to be that summer when that closed um, kind of led you in a different direction. Um, So I'd love then to kind of ask you to continue telling us a little bit about the sort of behind the scenes of this and how uh, the book sort of took shape. Um, Because you've talked about kind of the interests starting off with looking at Rhodesia, the transition to Zimbabwe. um, And the book then ultimately focuses on Kenya, Uganda, uh, Tanganyika, Tanzania, Zambia, and Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. So how did you kind of end up with that group of countries as your focus? Yeah. um, Yeah, that's, it was, it was really like a, kind of like you, you pointed out, it was kind of an odd wandering path, right? As, as many research questions are. Um, but I, you know, when I, 
after that, after that trip, that initial kind of research trip, I did, I mean, I gathered a lot of really great material and, um, you know, an interesting side note, uh, that Rhodesian Army Archives project actually has, is, is one of the strange kind of episodes and kind of disappearing archives. Um, it's controlled by veterans of the Rhodesian Army. And I think it's still held at the, it's, it's actually now held at the University of the West of England. Um, but it's very closed off and access is controlled by those veterans organizations. So I never actually did get to see the, the, the documents in there. Um, uh, but at the time I thought I might someday. Uh, so, um, I started thinking about just focusing on that Rhodesia to Zimbabwe question. Um, but as kind of time went by, I dug deeper into the question and I kind of just started to zoom out a little bit and think about, you know, here my question sits, you know, really in, in 1980. And when you look at the span of decolonization in Africa, particularly British decolonization, I mean, that's more or less the end, right? Or at least very close to the end. And so, you know, it, it had me start to ask questions about, okay, wait a second. You know, if I'm looking at doing something, a project on the transition from colony to independent nation and the creation of an army, and I'm looking at the end of this period, you know, the, the answer isn't, isn't here. Right. And so, um, that led me to kind of expand my aperture. I didn't quite have an idea of how far to expand it, but, you know, I started kind of looking out across Africa and saying, okay, what are these various experiences like in Ghana or, you know, other places, um, you know, in West Africa? And as I kind of just kind of worked through kind of some of the literature that was out there, um, I, you know, started to kind of identify some kind of similarities, differences, that kind of thing that maybe would be helpful. And, you know, I, I went back to that uh, kind of initial interest in the, these kind of weird situations that empire creates. Um, and that was really the, the, that settler community, right? The presence of that settler community in Rhodesia was one of the things that made this whole process exceedingly difficult, right? It was part, I mean, it was a reason for, you know, the, the, the conflict there for the unilateral declaration of independence. This whole episode is centered around, you know, this settler community's unwillingness to give up power. Um, and so I said, you know, that there's obviously other settler communities out there. Um, you know, is this transition as fraught with difficulty in all of those cases. Um, and while I was very interested in including South Africa in that kind of uh, look, it, it just, it was, it was too different and too big of an addition to include um, just because of their unique circumstances. I didn't think that it was a productive comparison, also because of the lack of overall control that the British government had in, in that uh, episode. I thought it just, it, it wouldn't be productive. Uh, so I looked further north and, um, you know, I was familiar with the, uh, 
um, you know, historiography of the of the Mau Mau conflict. And so I thought, you know, let me take a, a quick look and see if there's anything kind of to be done here on Kenya. Um, and it became very apparent very quickly that while there was this robust you know, amount of really good and really well done scholarship that was done on Kenya and then Mau Mau, um, particularly in their starting in the early 2000s, um, that it kind of dropped off when, you know, at 1960. Um, and, you know, you're not getting the the kind of rest of the story about, you know, what happens as they move towards independence, um, particularly as militarized as Kenya had become to respond to that um, to that uprising. Um, so it, it became clear that, that Kenya was going to be a great, another great kind of way to look at this. And it also is towards the beginning of that process of decolonization throughout the continent. Um, so I thought, okay, this is, I've got to include Kenya. Um, and then, you know, I said, all right, it's going to be Kenya and we're going to do uh, Rhodesia to Zimbabwe and, and that'll be great. Uh, but again, research takes its turn. Uh, and I realized that, you know, there's, there's these military connections throughout various regions in, in Africa, um, during the colonial period. And in Kenya, the military system there in under, uh, you know, the colonial government was the King's African rifles. Um, and this regiment, you know, was a, it, it wasn't limited to Kenya, right? So it's, it's throughout, it's spread throughout Central Africa. And, you know, you have battalions in Uganda, you have battalions in Tanganyika, you have a battalion in British Somaliland and, and all of these other places. Um, and the process of decolonization for Kenya was, you know, it, it was inseparable from that process in Uganda and all of these other places because that military system was connected. And so that kind of really settled um, that aspect of, okay, I've got to expand the aperture to include, you know, these, uh, these other colonies. Uh, and it also gave me a way to like, in, in small parts to compare kind of how difficult things could be in with the addition of settler colonialism um, versus someplace where that wasn't really going to be an issue like, like Uganda um, or, or, you know, Tanganyika. So that's, you know, kind of how the central Africa aspect came into play. Um, And then, you know, with, you know, uh, Zambia got, gets roped in uh, because they end up being connected to decolonization in Rhodesia, uh, by the uh, their their belonging to the federation of Rhodesia and uh, Nyasaland, that this kind of you know ten year you know in the you know nineteen fifty two to nineteen sixty two experiment in um, in creating a a nation of sorts out of these various colonies, um, and so. I ended up basically with two kind of large interconnected military systems that end up being uh, the foundation for all of the independent armies 
uh, after decolonization. So you have the King's African Rifles there and, you know, in Central Africa with Kenya and Uganda and all of those countries. And then I had the, you know, the Federation there with, um, you know, Zambia and Zimbabwe and, um, you know, Nyasaland, you know, later Malawi. Uh, that shared that federal structure. And so it, it became a, a pretty clear kind of organizing, um, you know, principle for the, the, the study to kind of use these, these structures um, to kind of look at, look at the problem. That makes sense. Um, and in a lot of ways kind of is a sort of organic growth based on the linkages um, rather than kind of some artificial top down, like, here's what I'm going to do. It's, um, kind of growing from um, what you are finding in the research process, which is always fascinating, especially when you get to explore archives, as it sounds like you did. Um, so now that we've kind of set up the foundations of the book, sort of how we got there and the, the basic sort of uh, grouping of countries and processes, um, we're obviously not going to be able to go into all of the detail that the book does. Um, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of cool archival material that's in it that unfortunately we're probably not going to be able to get too in depth on. Um, but I'd love to kind of take us a bit of a, maybe a highlights tour or whistle stop tour um, of some of the main points of the book. Um, so I'd love to kind of start off with something you've already mentioned a little bit, which is the idea of uh, the colonial militaries of Uganda, Tanganyika and Kenya being very much intertwined um, being really, you know, the king's rifles, like it was one thing uh, that obviously becomes a little bit tricky when they become independent. So I was wondering if we could start off with you explaining to us a bit about the idea of similarities and differences. What were some of those when it, when we're talking about the development and transition towards independent militaries in what becomes Uganda, Tanganyika and Kenya? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, one of the things that I, that I, you know, it comes up kind of as a theme kind of throughout the book or, you know, maybe, maybe theme is wrong word, but uh, it, it, or wrong phrase. It's, is this kind of military culture. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of questions about what does that mean? Is that quantifiable? Um, you know, is, is military culture like a thing that really can have influence? And, and I think that that actually is pretty clear um, in, in, it comes out pretty clearly in these examples, right? Is that um, the King's African Rifles, you know, the KAR, it, it, it's a, even though that has these disparate battalions that are, that are all over Central Africa and at times deploying all over the world during the colonial period, it, it really does have a unique regimental identity. And you know, they're, th- these things are, you know, they seem kind of inconsequential, uh, you know, at times to, you know, maybe an outsider where, you know, the, the specific, um, you know, insignia on a uniform or a badge that, that this regiment gets to wear versus a, a, a different regiment or some, some um, battle honor that they have on, on their colors. And, you know, but the, all of these little things, right, they're the kind of organizing principle of that, you know, esprit de corps, right, that common identity of, of the regiment. And particularly in these colonial military systems where these units are really, they're set apart from society, you know, very, very, you know, uh, specifically, 
they're they're on their own cantonment. Their children have their own schools. Their their families, you know, get food from the you know the be it the commissary, what 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 have you, um, where, you know, it's a community of its own. So when the time comes to address internal security problems that the colonial government wants to address, these units are they're not supposed to falter, right? They are going to be that that instrument of force of the colonial government against that um, that population, that indigenous population. And so the building of that that military and regimental culture was extremely important. And so you have these soldiers that served in the in the King's African Rifles for for decades, right? And their entire kind of life and identity is, you know, as it is in military training, is broken down at the beginning, and then it's built back up around kind of all of these symbols and, um, and you know, and 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 other things, right? To create a no, its its own unique regimental loyalties. So, in spite of the you know different recruiting areas, the different service areas that the King's African Rifles battalions had across Central Africa. They all had this kind of common identity in the regiment. Um, so there's a lot of commonality in, in that regard. But um, the one, you know, kind of the, the the challenges of the way that kind of independence occurred is that uh, because these all of these systems are organized the same way in one big system, they all have the same kind of failings as well. Um, so one of those big failings is that the King's African Rifles itself was a, it was an infantry force. Um, there were times in the, uh, in the history of the King's African Rifles where it was augmented, particularly during uh, the World Wars. Um, there were uh, support units established that were technical units where African troops were trained to perform you know, those technical tasks, be they, um, you know, mechanics, you know, radio operators, radio repair, all all of those kinds of ancillary things that, um, you know, a military needs to function. Uh, But at the end of, you know, World War II, all of those support units went away. Um, You know, they were stood down, post-war budget cuts, and all of those technical functions um, were then fulfilled for those much smaller organizations by um, white British troops that were brought in to the colony. So you have all of these these African soldiers with with decades of experience, and and you know they they you know had combat experience in in World War II in Burma. They had combat experience in uh, Malaya during the Malay Emergency. Um, so you know these. These soldiers are not, you know, um, ignorant of the ways of war, even conventional war. Um, you know, they're not just kind of internal security minded. So there's a lot of expertise there. But it's expertise in those kind of war fighting infantry tasks, not necessarily things like ammunition management. And, and you know, this is, <laughs> this is one of those things where like, oh, gosh, ammunition management, that sounds, you know, not very, you know, interesting, or, you know, maybe there's not a lot to it. But it's, it's extremely important to a force being able to function. 
So all of these systems throughout Uganda, Tanganyika, and Kenya lacked that that indigenous African knowledge of a lot of the administrative and technical aspects of how to run a military. So they all have kind of that similar failing as they're 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 moving towards independence. Um, and additionally, that on you know I kind of mentioned that administrative side. Um, all of the kind of administrative minutia of the military systems, be it, you know, pay, um, you know, ordering supplies, all of this, this kind of stuff had been kept out of the hands of African soldiers and kept in the hands of either um, uh, British non-commissioned officers uh, or officers. Uh, and so you have this kind of administrative leadership vacuum as well on uh, the African side. So in places like Uganda or Tanganyika, you know, this is, this is identified, right? These weaknesses, be it in, you know, leadership or technical skills are identified, you know, relatively early on in the move towards independence. And, and there's, you know, there's systems put in place. Um, Cadets, you know, African cadets from Uganda are sent to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. For officer training, um, you know they're sent off for technical training, and so there's a plan in place um, to get that expertise. Uh, even though it's you know it's kind of years away, like down the road, it takes two years to go through Sandhurst to become an officer. Um, you know they have a plan, and they've put people in that pipeline. You know as early as you know 1959, 1960 in those places like Uganda and Tanganyika to kind of at least start chipping away at that problem. Kenya is a very different, it has a very different experience. And, and it's that, um, that settler population that kind of throws the wrench in, uh, you know, in a way. Um, I mentioned Mau Mau earlier and, you know, that night, you know, between 1952 and 1960, you know, the you know Kenya colony had become extremely militarized, um, and and even just prior to Mau Mau, you had a um, compulsory military service law that was put in place in 1951, uh, and now this law only applied to white settlers. Um, so the you know white settlers who were 18 years of age were required to go through a period of mandatory military service. Um, you know basically, you know, do their initial training. Uh, and then after that, they were uh, obligated to serve in a reserve unit called the Kenya Regiment for a number of years afterwards, so they could be called up for various duties. And there were there was kind of a twofold purpose to this, this Kenya Regiment. Um, the Kenya Regiment was supposed to, one, in case of World War III, um, they anticipated the King's African Rifles being expanded like it had been in World War II. And the Kenya Regiment, these these white settlers, would be the uh, pool that they would use to um, uh, get officers for an expanded King's African Rifles, right? They would pull pull the, these white officers in to serve in the King's African Rifles uh, in case of war. Um, so that was, that was kind of one big overt um, aspect of 
the Kenya Regiment. The secondary kind of uh, more, you know, kind of true to the purpose of the unit uh, was that the settlers were increasingly uncomfortable in the wake of World War II having the only armed entity for internal security being composed primarily of Africans. Um, I mean, the King's African Rifles had white officers, but, you know, they're very much outnumbered by the African servicemen. And so it's this settler fear, right? Uh, And this kind of, you know, this race-based fear that they have that's feeding this kind of, hey, we need to have another unit, another armed unit that can kind of provide some sort of counterbalance to um, our, you know, the King's African Rifles. So with compulsory military service in 1951, you and followed closely by the beginning of the Mau Mau uprising, um, the Kenya Regiment did, in a way, what it was supposed to do during a large-scale mobilization uh, in case of like a world war, is a lot of uh, the officers uh, of the King's African Rifles were pulled from the Kenya Regiment. And if they weren't pulled from the Kenya Regiment, they were um, actually British National Service officers had the option of fulfilling their service overseas in the King's African Rifles. So you have this situation where there is a military emergency. There is somewhat of an expansion of the military machine because of Mau Mau, but there's no need to draw on, um, like to look to African manpower to fill this leadership role because there's this, this um, you know, settler community that's able to fill it for, for them. Uh, so as Kenya moves towards independence, uh, there's really not a sense of urgency in saying, oh gosh, you know, like if Kenya becomes independent, you know, the British military is going to pull out and we're going to have to create all of these officers. No, they, they, the, the British government, um, you know, in the colonial office see the solution as being that settler community. So even by, you know, 1960, 1961, when, these other colonies are sending, you know, black African cadets to Sandhurst to become officers. Kenya colony is actually sending white settler um, cadets to Sandhurst, or maybe um, they would send in a group one uh, uh, Indian uh, uh, settler of Indian descent to Sandhurst to, to receive training and become an officer, but no Africans. Um, so, as you know, Kenya is on the verge of independence uh, in you know 1963. There are almost no uh, African officers, uh, but the the other compounding factor is that the force, the military force planned for Uganda and Tanganyika, are significantly smaller than the force planned for Kenya, and part of that's just due to size of the countries. Um, and so Uganda and Tanganyika have a lot, um, the, the bar that they have to get to is a lot lower because they have fewer positions to fill, whereas Kenya has a lot more. Um, so the, the Kenyan government, you know, there in, in you know, 1962 really is kind of putting a, a 
bit of a, a bit of a pickle is they realize they're very close to independence. They have next to no African officers and they are looking at the, the timelines. As I mentioned earlier, it takes two years if you send a student to Sandhurst for them to come out on the other end and become a trained officer. Um, so the Kenyan government takes a shortcut. There's a whole batch of long-serving African uh, warrant officers who had been serving in kind of a senior non-commissioned officer capacity at kind of the, at small unit levels. And they said, you know what, we're going to take these folks who have a lot of experience at these small unit levels, and we're just going to send them to a short course on, you know, administration and commission them as officers. And there's our shortcut to getting more African officers. And, and you know, so they do that. Um, and, you know, by the time Kenya becomes independent in 1963, on paper, they're doing a lot better. They have a lot more African officers, but a lot of these officers didn't have the same training that, you know, an officer anywhere else in, you know, the British military or even, as I mentioned, in Uganda or Tanganyika would have because they'd been to these short courses. And while they knew their stuff, you know, maybe in infantry tactics, they weren't as familiar with a lot of those other kind of ancillary technical aspects of how to run uh, a military. Uh, so, so they were very, very behind. So you have this situation where there's these kind of imbalances in preparedness, military preparedness for, for independence. So kind of going back to similarities in Kenya, in Uganda, in Tanganyika, all of these places even though they're going to become independent and they become independent, you know, in from 1961, 62 and 63, it's clear that the British military is going to have to remain behind to either run these militaries almost as a whole or provide significant support to keep them functioning for at least tens of years until they're able to kind of get to these levels of, of, you know, uh, indigenous officers that, that they'll be able to function on their own. Um, and that really kind of led to the, the problems that we see later on in 1964 with the, you know, the East African, um, uh, the East African army mutinies is this kind of dissatisfaction with change isn't happening fast enough. And so, you have all of these militaries in all of these countries can, you know, they're, they're supposed to be independent and yet soldiers on the ground, you know, your, your, your private in the Ugandan army is seeing a British officer in front of his formation every day still. And it's hard, you know, to reconcile that in, um, in the minds of a lot of these soldiers and so, you know, that's one of, you know, a number of things that leads to those those mutinies in uh, Tanganyika and, and Kenya and Uganda is change isn't happening. We thought we were supposed to be independent and we're still the same unit wearing the same uniforms with, the, you know, the same officers that we were under British rule. Um, and that's that's not OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. That's, you know, you have that, that mutiny in 1964 that's kind of as a result of all of these kind of grievances. Uh, but, you know, the, 
as much as these, you know, these these entities share um, in that that regimental culture, in um, you know some of the the things that hinder their development as a military force, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, in Kenya, you see how the settler problem contorts um, and, and and makes a lot of these things even more challenging to to address than you do in the other c- colonies where that's just not an issue. Hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it would almost be strange if that wasn't the case. Um, if for some reason, like Kenya had the exact same situation as Uganda, you'd be like, well, hang on a second, that doesn't quite track. Um, but it is helpful to see that kind of because it is a unified, you know, they're starting from in a lot of ways, the same place from a military organization perspective, um, you would expect some similarities, but then kind of how that changes um, is quite interesting. But I'd love to kind of stay on the theme, um, if you will, of the idea of despite the countries being actually independent, it's very clear that uh, Britain is needed to a degree or some kind of external support is needed in order to um, help the military kind of get to a place where they can s- operate entirely by themselves. Um, because this isn't just something that you show is happening in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanganyika. This is, in fact, running throughout um, the cases that you look at. And it was particularly interesting in Zambia um, how, first off, kind of in a similar sort of situation, at independence, the Zambian military doesn't seem to have had a fabulous reputation um, or ability to do a lot for itself um, for for some of the similar sort of structural reasons you've already mentioned. Um, But I would love to kind of stay on this idea of kind of, well, what happens once it's realized that more support is needed after independence? And Zambia, in fact, turns away from the British for military training and equipment um, and towards countries, for example, India or some countries in the Eastern Bloc. as I suppose a sort of possible solution to reliance on the British, or I guess I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about kind of why Zambia makes that turn and sort of to what extent does it work or how does it impact their military? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, um, it's a really kind of fascinating place in that, you know, a lot of these things are kind of, you know, they're all going on at once and, you know, Zambia for, you know, for its part, you know, it just in part, it just kind of developed a little bit differently. Uh, one kind of interesting nugget is that the, the Zambia or Northern Rhodesia, as it was called at the time, the Northern Rhodesia regiments, um, that even though they weren't connected in the same way to the, those, those other, um, uh, nations and colonies, uh, they they were actually still connected by radio uh, to these other units. the The Northern Rhodesia Regiment used the same radio network that the uh, former units of the King's African Rifles used. And so, as these these mutinies are happening, the soldiers in the Northern Rhodesia Regiment actually like were kind of hearing this stuff first uh, on the radio. And so, it's a very kind of interesting uh, kind of little you know, tidbit or slice, right, uh, of history. And, um, you know, they, it's, so that federal influence, right, that federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland, it brings a whole, like, it, Kenya's settler community was, was certainly powerful, 
um, but they they weren't able to exercise power in the same way that the settlers in the Federation were. And part of that was because no matter how powerful the, the, the settlers in the in Kenya colony grew, they were always they always had to answer to the the colonial office in London, right? The, they were not a self-governing colony um, it, that that kind of gave them, you know, a blank check to rule however they they would like. And so, you know, kind of whatever you want to say about, you know, what kind of checks on colonialism is the British government in London, um, you know, it, it it does you know prove to be something. Um, and so, when the federation is created, you have the joining of Southern Rhodesia, you know, or what we later call just Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia, what we now know as Zambia, um, and then Nyasaland. Um, and, you know, part of the reason that, that London was eager to do this was because one cost, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, as, as much as, you know, there are complex explanations for a lot of, you know, the things that are covered in the book, one of the easy ones is cost. There's always that desire to economize on cost. And, uh, you know, the Federation, the British government saw as one way to do that. But uh, another kind of important thing was as a counterbalance to South Africa and kind of the growing concern over what South Africa was turning into. Um, So you have this Federation and it is made up of, you know, Northern Rhodesia was administered by the colonial office, but Southern Rhodesia was, it's a, it was a self-governing crown colony um, that fell kind of somewhere between a, um, like a colony like Kenya, but not quite a commonwealth like Canada was at the time. So it was kind of this odd in-between space. And so by creating the federation, it empowered the settler community in Southern Rhodesia to kind of make alliances with that settler community in Northern Rhodesia and really have a lot of freedom to create structures, legal structures um, throughout the Federation. Um, So the, um, you know, the, the impacts of which are kind of, you know, they have a lot to do with why, you know, Zambia's story is, is, is slightly different. Um, and so even though Zambia kind of weathers the East African mutinies without a mutiny there them, themselves, um, they are very concerned about kind of this, this transition period. And, um, you know, the part of the, the kind of issue is, is they see in the mutinies uh, and realize, you know, that, you know, African leaders in Zambia say we cannot be like these other countries and take forever to, um, to become self-sufficient militarily. Um, it's just, it's not an option. And at the time they were kind of on a similar kind, similar glide path as these colonies, you know, it was going to take a number of years. They had, they had, you know, cadets that they were sending to, uh, to Britain, uh, to Sandhurst to train. Uh, but it still was going to be a number of, of years before those folks were back. And, and on top of that, I mean, they were looking at kind of more than a decade timeline for even an African officer to take charge of the Zambian 
army just because you know it, it, you can't commission somebody as a second lieutenant you know one day and say all right hey, a year later you're going to run a 10,000 person organization <laughs> um so the British had this idea of, all right, we're going to train them for a few years on how to command a company, and then we're going to put them in a staff job for a couple of years. And, and slowly they will move people up this ladder to be able to take charge of, of the army. But um, by, you know, 1964, 1965, um, you know, the, the Zambians are, are very concerned that this is, it's going to take too long. And they, they, they actually bring these these concerns up to the British. They say this is taking too long. We need more. Uh, we need more uh, places at Sandhurst to train more officers. We need more places at Staff College so we can get folks trained in these kinds of roles. And you know the British government is it, it, it's not as if they're completely deaf to those concerns and that they're ignored. You know they're taken and acknowledged but the british simply kind of tell the zambians like hey i'm sorry we there's no room we can't give you any more you know they they were also constrained you know at that period of you know we can only train so many officers at sandhurst at one time and you know the zambians were one party in Africa that's, that was asking for training. You know, there were folks from all over Africa that are asking for seats at Sandhurst and the British are trying to balance that and, you know, kind of give everybody a little bit. Um, you know, additionally, um, you know, the British were not the best at equipping these, these foreign militaries. What they saw when they saw a country that was turning towards independence, again, going back to that cost issue, they said, all right, now we're going to be able to turn over all of these costs to this newly independent nation. And here might be an opportunity for us to engage in some foreign military sales and sell British equipment to these countries rather than us having to equip them ourselves. Um, And... uh, you know, these are new nations. They are reprioritizing their their own budgets to address kind of long-term inequities that have been present. And, you know, military hardware is just not at the top of their list. And so a lot of these states become, you know, donor states when it comes to military equipment. And they just cannot afford a lot of the stuff that the British are saying, hey, like, you know, we'd love to work with you on this and we'll give you a discount, right? Um, well, you know, a discount means it's still way too expensive. And we have to justify as leaders why we're paying for new jets as opposed to trying to electrify this rural area. And that was just not something that was going to play well for, um, you know, the Zambian public. And you had all of these other players in the game. And that's, I think that's one of the things that, that I also really enjoyed about doing the book was that even though this is a story about, about decolonization uh, in many ways, it's actually also very much a cold war story. Um, And that I think sometimes we, as you know, historians, we tell the story of decolonization 
um, and kind of forget to include some of those kind of Cold War facts. And so, or not necessarily forget to include them, but forget to kind of emphasize how much of a factor this is. And so, because the you know the Cold War is going on, you have all of these other players that are out there shopping for influence in these new independent countries, but also that are trying to find an output for their own military hardware. And that 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 is you know Yugoslavia, um, that is the whole of the Eastern Bloc um, as well that are that are kind of saying, hey, not only will we help do some training for you, but we also have this military equipment that we're willing to maybe sell you, but also donate a portion um, or give you really attractive loan terms so you can you know, pay it off over time. And so there, the, the, be it Yugoslavia, be it the Eastern Bloc, um, or you know China and particularly North Korea were also very willing to offer these things uh, as incentives to kind of buy that influence. Uh, and so the Zambians look at some of these other partners, um, and also some of them are Western partners like uh, Italy uh, that are that are looking for outlets of their own, uh, and they say, you know what, these other uh, partners are saying they're going to be able to give us more training. They're going to be able to do it quicker. And on top of that, they're going to give us this equipment either free or at a very knockdown rate. And there was just no way that that Zambian politicians could kind of turn their backs on that type of assistance that's going to get that get them to that goal of kind of independence sooner. Now, as you kind of alluded to, there's that there's a trade-off. <laughs> is what they learned is there actually really is no shortcut or easy button to creating the military competency. You know, a lot of it is time and extensive training. And so these various training missions that they, that they, you know, engage with, be it with the Chinese or the Italians, they actually don't end up getting the Zambians any more capable, uh, unfortunately. So as a military organization, as far as capability goes to conduct their military mission, it actually gets, gets way worse. Um, and they're, they're, they're doing this at a time when, you know, Rhodesia has unilaterally declared independence. There is a war going on with independence movements who are sometimes basing in Zambia. So there are all these threats The you know, there will be a war in Angola. I mean, so there's a lot of military threats to confront and that the military is getting worse at doing military things. Um, but they do, you know, they do kind of, you know, turn a corner in, in, in certain ways, particularly as some of these kind of threats die down a little bit, but also, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, you know, the Zambians, because of all of these changes, they're not able to conduct brigade level exercises. You know, they're not able to do battalion level exercises. And as a military, you do want to be able to do those things. But then, you know, you kind of have to look and say, like, w- what is it really that this force needs to do for this country? Um, you know, it needs to protect its borders. It needs to, you know, maybe not get involved in politics. Um, you know, so as a military force you know when you kind of we kind of look back on it it and zambian the zambian army does exactly what zambia needs it to do 
right? It does protect its borders. Zambia doesn't get drawn into any of these other these other regional conflicts, you know, fully. There's there's skirmishes, um, particularly with Rhodesia, um, and then also, even though there are various, you know, about four coup attempts uh, over the years uh, from you know the uh, you know seventies through the nineteen eighties. The important part is they are all actually put down by the army internally. And so this is this is actually kind of a pretty big deal for an institution. While you have, you know, parts of the institution that said we're going to rebel against the government, the institution was able to crack down on it and squelch that, you know, themselves. And so you know, whatever the other failings were militarily, you know, technically as a kind of profession, um, they were able to actually maintain that separation between the military and the civilian government, and they weren't getting involved in politics. And so, you know, it does kind of turn that corner into kind of a success story, so to speak, because um, even though they're not able to maybe maybe maneuver or, you know, do, you know, fire support for a battalion while it's moving, they did what Zambia needed it to do as an institution. So I think that's kind of that that story of how they kind of they turned away in in a lot of ways from the West, but in spite of that, they still had that um, you know that robust professional outlook on where their place was within the democracy. Hmm. Yeah, very very interesting, and definitely not a small thing to um, be involved in coups, not as the instigators, um, but in sort of keeping peace and not getting involved in politics. That's certainly um, something that a lot of countries struggle with. So very interesting that that's not the case, um, given kind of the challenges and struggles of the Zambian army that you've just introduced us to. Um, And I'd love then to kind of, as we come towards the end of the interview, to turn to the case that kind of started you off on this of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. Um, And I don't think we'll be able to go into kind of all the detail of uh, what happened with Rhodesia's army and all the different things it went through, though it is really uh, quite interesting in the book for listeners who want to get into those details. Um, I'd like to kind of focus on the sort of British involvement, because what you've been telling us about so far has in a lot of cases been about ways that the British wanted to minimize their involvement or ways that uh, the newly independent countries wanted Britain to minimize their involvement and kind of tensions around that, around cost and number of places and all sorts of things. And yet when it comes to um, Rhodesia and Zimbabwe, uh, the British remain involved much longer um, and kind of actively plan for it. There's a lot less kind of begging, please come get involved. There's there's plans being made before the Brits are even really asked in some cases. Um so if I kind of if if we if we launch to sort of the middle of the case study to a degree, um, and think about kind of that the strain the two kind of strange transition points right when when Rhodesia uh, stops becoming dominated by the settler uh, minority community and there's a prospect of hang on a second now there's going to have to be some sort of merging between the kind of professionalized white settler military and the guerrilla um, African indigenous forces how is that going to happen? Um, and then kind of later on between the two competing um, Zimbabwean forces. I was really interested to find in the book that the British were quite interested in these merging processes and 
had a lot of ideas, not just about kind of what would happen, but also what their role would be. And given what we've been talking about of kind of the British trying to leave or countries trying to push the British out or both, I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us a bit about kind of why were the British looking to get involved? How did they see their involvement um, in this period? Um, kind of what in, in this in, in some ways, this was quite an active engagement. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about it. Yeah, I think, you know, part of it, it really goes back to, you know, what I was speaking to earlier about the, that context of the Cold War. And, you know, when we when we think about a lot of, you know, military assistance, uh, you know, obviously it's in support of policy objectives. But, uh, you know, in this, in, in the case of, of, of Africa, in particular, during this period, you know, even though the British were responsible as a, you know, colonial power, uh, you know, they have a certain level of responsibility on kind of shepherding transition. Uh, it, it wasn't as though they actually had to. Um, you know, if we look at the the uh, various, uh, you know, French colonies uh, that, you know, transitioned to independence, I mean, there's, there's a number of examples where, you know, the French just left and, you know, turned out the lights, took the light fixtures and and said, you're on your own now. Um, so, you know, when, uh, you know, as you kind of pointed out, the British kind of stay and they choose, they, they choose to stay involved and they, they actively plan for their involvement. Um, in large part, it was to kind of, su- to maintain influence. They maintain a British sphere of influence in this area. Um, one for for policy reasons, you know, Zimbabwe bordered South Africa. Um, as the British are planning for the transition to independence, you know, in the the late seventies, I mean, this is at a really critical geographic place in Southern Africa. Um, in part because you know there's wars going on in Mozambique, in Angola, um, you know, in in Namibia, uh, and then of course everything that's going on with South Africa, and so this Zimbabwe is a place that the British are really looking at as a key place to influence what is happening in Southern Africa, and also in a Cold War context in Southern Africa. So there is a there's very much a kind of like Cold Warrior aspect of we want to maintain influence here to ensure in some way that communism or these various communist powers don't get influence in Zimbabwe. And I wouldn't say, you know, there's any sort of like altruistic, like, ah, because life will be better, but it's in, in large part because of great concern about what South Africa will do, right? You know, the, the South African government had very clearly, you know, waged war throughout Southern Africa. And so the British were very concerned about, about that possibility kind of extending further in the continent. And then again, there's the settler community, right? This, this is a huge part of the British calculus. Um, even though these people now live in, you know, at, at the time, you know, what became independent Zimbabwe, you know, they are very much, you know, British passport holders, or if they're not, they have a case probably where they could apply to be. Um, and so, 
there's a big concern on the part of the British government because they know that there is certainly a lot of sympathy um, for this population uh, domestically. And there had always been, you know, there, there were always questions about why the British didn't do more militarily from the beginning to crack down on the settler government. And there was this whole line about, you know, basically not fighting against Kurth and Kin. Um, and so these aspects, I think, really drive are kind of that the, the behind the scenes drive towards why the British see their role as being more involved in this particular scenario. But additionally, I do think that they were, were excited in a certain way because you mentioned that professional, um, you know, white Rhodesian army that had existed. And it becomes this, this problem again, very unique uh, in, in military history of, Hey, we have to create an army, not just from a, like a pre-colonial force, but from former combatants, um, that is a unique, very unique problem. Um, but I think the British focus less on that part um, as as kind of like, oh man, this is going to be a big issue. But they definitely saw that Rhodesian army. They said, hey, this is a professional force trained along British lines with a lot of officers that probably hold British passports. These folks can be the trainers for this new army. So there's an there's an uh, they saw an opportunity to kind of displace cost uh, onto again onto that new independent nation. And they said, hey, we can we can mobilize a small training team that can kind of oversee stuff, but those folks that you know from the the former Rhodesian army, they can be the primary trainers, and we can save a lot of cost. We can do all of this inside Zimbabwe. We don't have to send people to expensive training in Britain except for maybe, you know, a handful of things that, you know, they just can't do there. Um, so even though we will have to be involved and they did see, a, you know, hey, we're going to have to be involved for a lot of years doing this, that, and the other, they saw it as a very low cost way to maintain a presence and influence uh, in the country. And um, that was, I think, very exciting to a lot of planners, uh, and, you know, certainly there's a lot of themes uh, that, that played very well there to Margaret Thatcher's government, right? That, you know, be, be it, you know, the Cold War theme, right? The anti-communist theme, um, the, you know, trying to make sure that you pr- prevent a, a wider war against e- either against South Africa or by South Africa, Um were all things that were very attractive to the Thatcher government. And when, you know, particularly military planners looked and, and, and thought that they could do that kind of, uh, on the cheap that, you know, that became even more attractive. Um, and so it was kind of a very quick commitment to this idea of maintaining influence and being able to do it on the cheap. And, you know, what, what doesn't sound great about that? So I think those are all the things that are kind of driving those policy decisions uh, at the time and kind of give the British that incentive to say, hey, yeah, I think we'll do, we'll we'll make a long-term kind of commitment, a long-term low-key commitment to this country. And it'll be easy, right? right. <laughs> That's it'll always be easy. the key. It'll be cheap. Like right. it'll fit in with everything else with no problems. Yeah, of course. 
Um, and yet, of course, that's not what happens in Zimbabwe. Um, and I was particularly interested in kind of a, a few different bits that I guess I had never really put together before. So obviously, it, Thatcher's government thinks this is a great idea. And yet you talk about in the book how even Thatcher's government realizes in 1981 that actually this idea of supporting Zimbabwe's military and that helping with sphere of influence, etc., is not actually, those two things are not actually working that well together. Military influence doesn't really seem to be leading to this bigger outcome. And then, of course, just a few months later in 1982, uh, Robert Mugabe and his group start killing a lot of people. Um, and they do that for a while, a good number of years, um, which gets a, enough press, at least, that there are kind of condemnations and um, kind of public pressure against supporting Mugabe, which obviously, as we know now, continues through a lot of Mugabe's um, presidency of Zimbabwe. But Britain still supports Zimbabwe militarily, despite kind of this internal thing of actually maybe it's not getting us the influence we want and this external pressure. How does that change or not change the calculus? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a persistent argument uh, in, in kind of policy channels internally uh, in, you know, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, in the MOD. And then you, you even see this on the, on the U.S. side, um, you know, at the time, even though the U.S. isn't necessarily involved in kind of providing that, that assistance in the same way that there's a similar conversation on the U S side in diplomatic channels about, should we come out and condemn Mugabe publicly? Should we continue to, you know, try to work with him uh, in, in a very similar way? And, and interestingly, the answers that you see on both sides are, well, if we just condemn him or we stop cooperating, well, then we'll have no access. It's this idea of no access. Um, you know, there's this, that there was an argument that there was an unimagined world where, you know, they are, you know, even though they, it's very clearly proving that they, they don't have any influence, that somehow if they're not there, they have less influence. Um, and so this is kind of the the very much the kind of idea that persists, but the the kind of thing that anchors them in place again to you know well what's the problem if you don't have you know access to Mugabe in in Zimbabwe and the and the answer really is is that settler community right you have you know tens of thousands of again British passport holders that are there. And so the, the the British government is also very that that is another thing that you that has that kind of anchors them to this to this uh, you know plan that they have in place. Well, even though it's becoming clear and we're getting consistent reports from on the ground that our our kind of you know influence is not is not influence at all with this government. We we have to stay and we have to continue to do this. So just in case something big happens, we'll have access. Um, and and kind of at, throughout the 1980s, kind of like you allude to, even though they they know before the massacres in Matabeleland are, are are even 
kind of starting and becoming public knowledge that it's becoming clear that this is not working, right? And that that Mugabe is making these overtures and relationships with the Chinese and with the North Koreans in particular. You know, you have a North Korean military training team that is on the ground at the same time <laughs> as a British military training team. I and mean, this is like... I don't know that this has ever occurred any other place. It's that very... was a fascinating detail. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's 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 this. The it became clear that even the massacres that occurred, I, I don't know what threshold the British government would have had at the time to really just kind of pull the plug. Um, but I mean, in the throughout the eighties, as you know, tens of thousands of people are, are you know are murdered. Um, they, they never reached it. Um, and, you know, as, you know, kind of discussed in the book, you know, it's not until, you know, the, um, the land confiscations of the early 2000s where the, you know, the Zimbabwean government basically said, hey, you know, we're going to confiscate land of these kind of remaining white corporate farmers um, that the British government finally said, you know, hey, we've had enough. We're pulling the plug. We're pulling our last military trainers out of there. And, I, and I'm not necessarily trying to say that there is like, that it was only, uh, you know, a, a decision based on, um, you know, well, just that white population. I think that, you know, I, I, it'd be speculation for me to say what the all, uh, other policy kind of implications were, but, but I'm sure that, you know, there are other policy implications as well, just like there were, you know, in the 1980s to say, hey, we've, we know this is not working. But if we leave altogether, you know, maybe the North Koreans will take over completely. And so it's kind of this idea of, I think, if we occupy space by simply being present, then somebody else can't fill that space. And that became kind of the, the driving factor behind this military assistance in Zimbabwe. Got it. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, um, particularly with kind of the context you've explained to us before. So thank you for that. Um, we now kind of are coming really to the end of the interview. And obviously, we've not been able to go into all the detail, though I'm glad we've gotten a few things in, um, particularly the North Koreans in Zimbabwe. I'm still, I've already finished reading the book, and I'm still thinking about that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre one. <laughs> it was really quite interesting. Um, so obviously, listeners should be aware that there is a lot more detail in the book. But hopefully, we've given a bit of a taste of kind of some of the main arguments, the main ideas, and some of the um, main kind of stories for each of these countries that you tell. Um, but the book is done. It is out. People can actually read it. So inevitably, are you working on something now or next? You can give us a little teaser of before we let you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got uh, I'm doing kind of looking at a project. Uh, I mentioned I kind of mentioned it briefly about various perspectives there. And we were talking about that last question of the U.S. and, and the U.K., um, at, at the time, and and in doing research for the book, uh, this book, I, I came, I looked at some Australian uh, intelligence assessments about uh, Zimbabwe at the time from their Office of National Estimates, and um, kind of one one of the things that that I decided, you know, I think it'd be worth looking into is kind of the differences in that five eye community, that five eye intelligence community of, you know, Canada, US, UK, uh, Australia, and New Zealand on kind of their intelligence analysis at 
particularly at this time. Uh, and, you know, I don't know for sure if I'm going to focus completely on maybe just Zimbabwe or maybe Africa, but kind of looking at the ways that that Five Eye community um, viewed some of these issues, either similarly, you know, is there kind of groupthink going on, or are there real clear divergences in intelligence analysis within that Five Eye community during the Cold War. And so that's kind of the, at least what I'm looking at right now. So we'll, we'll see uh, where it goes from here. Fascinating. Um, I think that would be really quite interesting. So best of luck with that project. Thank um, you. But while you're off diving into the Australian archives, among others, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which as a reminder is titled Built on the Ruins of Empire, British Military Assistance and African Independence from the University Press of Kansas in 2022. Dr. Blake Whitaker, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me.